This is TDPS. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring. It's available wherever eBooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And we begin this evening, this afternoon, whenever you're <laughs> listening to this, with a public service announcement. I have had too many French fries. <laughs> So it may just be TDA's presents Eric. <laughs> Eric reads the show notes. Right. Yes. Tries to make heads or tails of Christopher's show notes. <laughs> we, I got to tell you, we record, as everybody who listens to this show knows, we record a bunch of episodes in a row because we like to really binge on our true crime. Uh, and the last one we recorded was maybe the most gruesome one we've done. Just disgusting. So I decided to engage in some emotional eating <laughs> afterwards. Which is kind of hard to believe because yeah. it was one of the most graphically disgusting and nauseating episodes we've ever done. Yet we were still starving because we yeah. also did an extra episode. If you haven't checked yes. it out, you should check out our... Um, I got to get the notes. VIP, P. <laughs> no. <laughs> we always forget what we call everything. Some... In, insider episode. Insider episode. Yes. VIP, P. If you want to be a very important party person, all our party people are important. But if you're willing to go through the extra effort of joining our mailing list, we're also inviting you to join a private Facebook group where we will have more focused discussions and spoilery discussions of certain TV shows right. that are not true crime. That we don't want to do spoiler stuff that like we usually do on the show because today we're going to do an episode of Hometown Homicide yes. called Unsafe Anywhere, season two, episode six, which you can enjoy watching and then listen to us, or you can tune in and we're going to serve it up to you, as Christopher <laughs> always says, in excruciating detail. <laughs> You're really taking it over. It'll be just like you watch the episode. But, <laughs> but, you know, either way, however you enjoy it, some of our listeners say that they they actually hate true crime, but they love hearing us talk about it, so yes. they would never watch any of the episodes, and which is fine with us. We don't care why you're listening. We're just glad that you are. We appreciate you. We call that the Cindy Conforti rule because she said, I made the mistake of watching the actual episode um, on my own, and it was really boring, and they kept repeating everything because it was designed to have commercial breaks. They really do. And she really enjoyed our version more, and so we celebrate Cindy almost every episode on the show. I thought... 
Is that the Cindy Conforti rule? I thought yes. that was a different rule. What did you think the Cindy Conforti rule I can't rule remember, was? but I thought it was something else. I didn't know that was – that doesn't sound like a rule. The Cindy Conforti rule, I think, was don't watch the actual show. <laughs> That was the Cindy Conforti well, that's rule. that's kind of a rule, but I don't think that was it. I think but it is, if you notice that, like, it depends on which one we're doing, obviously. If we do an HBO one, it's not a problem. But if we do what was designed for a network one and we stream it, there's a break, a little black screen, and then they repeat the last 15 minutes oh of my the God. show. That's, that's, how, that's why Dateline takes two hours. Mm-hmm. Like, if you took out yeah. everything that they repeat, it would be, like, 15 minutes long. Right, exactly. Yeah, it just really, it, it can be, but you have to, it's the art of how you watch it. Uh, oh, is it now? Yeah, you just Jedi. sort of, you, you buzz past, it really is. Yeah. Particularly with Dateline. I used to have a TiVo, and it had the auto-skip feature, mm-hmm. and so I would, it was the perfect way to watch Dateline, because you'd hear them start the thing that you knew they were going to repeat on the next episode, and you'd just hit the skip button, and it would jump past not only the thing you knew they were going to repeat, mm-hmm. but also all of the commercials, and then bam, they would just say it once. They would still say it once, right. but you didn't have to hear it twice in a row, mm. whereas with a com- as you would if you were watching it with commercial television. Yeah, do you miss TiVo at all? Do you... you know, I actually do. I loved a lot of what TiVo... The thing that I didn't love about TiVo was the TiVo company. They yes. became just... They went from being very service-oriented and really responsive to being the most difficult and sketchy kind mm-hmm. of organization. They did stuff at the end that was like, I'm sorry, you need to... Like, my TiVo broke, and they were like, well, if you... Send us enough money to buy a whole new TiVo. We will send you another TiVo or repair the one that you already have. And I was like, and then they, but they were going to refund the money once the new TiVo showed then, up. But then it took a really long time uh-huh. to refund the money. And I was like, yeah, is this being run by that guy from FTX? The the <laughs> the crypto exchange that went <laughs> belly up because he was spending all the investor money and in right, his, yeah, in a sort of. Uh, I, I, Bernie Madoff kind of I'm going to spend the investments on paying people div- as paying people dividends mm-hmm. yeah sort of approach to um, finance gonna, that that, that yeah. I believe the the government frowns on yeah they do that was a long walk from TiVo how did we get to crypto from TiVo well we were talking about the way the, the Cindy Conforti rule oh right absolutely and and the way that I was saying what a great way to watch Dateline it was to yes use your TV. absolutely I'm sorry those french fries have really kicked in I, I'd also like to just point out that you're currently repairing your eyeglasses during our show which is causing you a problem how well because I don't have eye contact like I usually do which makes me feel unsafe no not that kind of eye contact <laughs> now I really don't feel safe good <laughs> Good. That's how that works. Um, I need these in order to be able to see your copious show notes you don't, because I never know when you're going to pass out now that you've OD'd on, on French fries. French fries. French fries. I like French fries. You like French fries potatoes? French fries potatoes. Okay. That's enough of just enjoying ourselves here. That's, That's right. I've enjoyed myself enough. We can stop now. You can talk. Okay. The good news <laughs> Yes, the good news. Let me bring the darkness as I usually do. <laughs> the good news is that after a false alarm two episodes ago where we thought we were going to do a case that was about a gay victim, uh, it turns out this one we were not misled. The synopsis, despite being two lines of text, actually gave us the right idea of what this story was going to be about. This is going to turn out to be 
a pretty big gay story, which I had never heard about. Had you ever heard this? No. I mean, this was like, wow, this is serial killer time. And it was and the thing that's interesting about it was that it was a while before they really figured out that this was somebody Mm -hmm. who was targeting gay men, a serial killer who was targeting gay men. Yeah. And and I have to say, like, I also thought this is an hour of television that we're going to be talking about. I think there's more to this story. I don't know if it could quite be expanded to the level of the, the last tall, last call skill, killings. Excuse me, this is Rentra's just attacking. Let's try saying that one more time. <laughs> the last call killings, which we covered on previous two episodes, right. or a two-parter that we did a couple episodes ago. Those were really a story that went on for many years in New York City and had a book written about them. But I feel like there was a lot here. I mean, a lot of twists and turns I wasn't expecting. This month of episodes for us is about. We thought small town, hometown horrors is what we Because everybody's going home for the holidays, yeah. so we're doing a sort of home for the holidays murder. Scare the shit out of you. Yeah, terrifying kind of thing. carnage yeah. thing Absolutely. like we do. Absolutely. You know. Um, so I think they were – this show is called Hometown Homicide. I don't know if it's committed to small towns, but I think Minneapolis just – there's some – they try to say justify it as a small town, and it's right. like not really. Yeah, it's like it's kind of on the bigger yeah. side, and it's kind of on. Have you yeah. been? To, no, I don't. I don't think yeah. I have ever been. I have been. I've been once on a book tour. Mom and I signed. It looks at like a beautiful place. Mall of America is just outside Minneapolis, so we signed at Mall of America. Oh, I would kind of love to go there just because it was a riot. But um, I got the driving tour around and went past Mary Tyler Moore's apartment. Or the drove apartment. around the mall? No, around Minneapolis. <laughs> you could drive around that mall. It's big. Like, we stayed in the mall. Like, we could have lived in the mall. It was incredible. Do people live in the mall? I don't know if it's legal. No, there. I don't think they're condos or anything like that. Yeah. Or there weren't when we were there. This was many years ago. Yeah. Now, what with retail space being I think, what yeah. it is, it's probably loaded with condos. Absolutely. Um, but... They told me, and we went downtown, I was signing stock, which if you don't know what that means, authors sometimes when they would go on book tour, they would go to just local bookstores and sign whatever copies of their book they had. It's also a great way to find out who didn't have any copies of your book. And it's a great way to prevent them from sending them back. It used to be, but they got rid of that a few years uh, ago. Yeah, I know. Pulp is pulp. I know. Um, so there's like an underground to Minneapolis because it's so cold there during the winter that they have, I think, a series of bridges, at sky bridges and tunnels so that you can pass between the downtown buildings without ever going outside. And apparently you need to not go outside during some Doesn't of the Doesn't Dallas months. have the same thing? Uh, I don't think so. I think Atlanta has a similar tunnel system. I think they do. Does Dallas well, it's, have... It's mainly... I think... I don't know if they had tunnels, but I know that there, a lot of the buildings are connected by sky bridges so you can get around. I guess... Because it's so hot. Uh, yeah, I would say it's probably the opposite reason. Yeah. Anyway, so that's the extent of my personal Minneapolis I learned to ice knowledge. skate in Dallas. Did you really? First time I ever ice skated was in Dallas. So even though it's hot, they're still, you know, yeah, ice skating. Okay, so now that I pretended to know stuff about Minneapolis and you distracted us by talking about Dallas, let's just <laughs> dive right into what this story is really about here. Okay. okay. What the hell? Season two, episode six of Hometown Up uh, Homicide. The episode. <laughs> what was in those? This is going to be great. I just have no idea. You have no idea how many takes it took us to get him to say that. <laughs> I want to just go on the record and say somebody poisoned my french fries. Or, with... or he put magic mushrooms in his french fries or something's going <laughs> yes. on. Anyway, 
Things are about to get serious, so it's time to focus. I'm just going to read my notes word for word to avoid any disruptions or French fry interventions. Which is never going to work because I'll still be here. I know. You'll just interject and say all sorts of spirited things like you always, always do. Always do. Spirited Eric. That's me. Eric Shaw Quinn, like the spirit Halloween stores. The spirit of Christmas, what the fuck? <laughs> all right. Um... So the, the prologue of this show, I, I don't know what the point of it was, but we actually, we opened with some archival news footage from the Minneapolis-St. Paul area that shows a family using their camcorder to capture some teens breaking into a neighborhood, uh, neighboring house. And I thought it was going to mean that the show was talking about how video was going to become, was becoming a part of crime reportage and then... We had a number of crimes committed in complete darkness in wilderness areas. And I was like, what are you talking? What was that about? I think the point was to show how low the crime rate was in Minneapolis at the time of this story. And they're trying to pass off Minneapolis as a small town that qualifies for treatment in this special. And it doesn't quite. Okay. So this was like the biggest deal was families capturing peeping toms with their camcorder and getting them arrested. Um <laughs> But that's how they introduced Jeff Crilly, who was a local uh, news reporter at the time, uh, who will become kind of a regular fixture in this special. We then meet Sergeant Pete Jackson, who's a retired Minneapolis Police Department homicide detective, who tells us that in the summer of 1991, the city was in the midst of a rare heat wave. And around this time, a call came in about... So it was like 72 degrees. I know. <laughs> What qualifies as a above heat freezing? Wave? Like, what, what does that mean in Minneapolis? I wonder. If we have any Minneapolis listeners, listeners, please write into the Facebook page and tell us the coldest you have ever experienced in Minneapolis. Also, the hottest. Yeah. Okay. Right. Because I, I, I think we will be unimpressed by the second answer. <laughs> but you never can tell. I. Anyway. Yeah. So they were having a heat wave. They did not say what that constitutes in Minneapolis, but it was warmer than usual. It was 63 degrees, and, and so yes. And people were, you know, able to go outside, and that was also unusual. Also very unusual. A call comes in about shots fired in the area of Loring Park. Uh, a 21-year-old man is heard screaming and running and yelling that he has been shot, and then he unfortunately collapses and dies. We interviewed Chief John Lau, who is listed as being a retired Minneapolis Police Department uh, detective. Uh, he says the victim is quickly identified as Joel Larson. And he's identified by a gathering crowd of neighbors, people from the community who know him as someone who lives in the area. We interviewed Joel's uh, sister, Janet, uh, his friend, Kelly. They are both absolutely distraught, obviously. They're looking back on these events in 1991. The special is considerably more recent than that. Uh, they describe Joel as being a sort of, um, <clears throat> as sort of growing up to be a light in the world, but he struggled a lot in high school and, and uh, when he was a younger student as well. He was legally blind. Which they never really defined what that was. Like, yeah. he doesn't wear glasses at all, which I thought was an odd thing, but and maybe they, he was so far gone it wouldn't have helped. They also said that he was incredibly charming and he could convince people to do anything, including let them let him drive their car, which was like, okay. which is why I was I'm back to the he must yeah. have been able to see something or that would not have lasted very long or yeah. happened more than once. Exactly. Uh, he meets his friend Kelly in a teen dance club, which she describes as kind of a gathering place for misfits. Um, he was a great dancer. He loved to be in the spotlight. 
Uh, and he really wanted to move to this area of Loring Park in Minneapolis because it was a, a liberal area. It sounds like it was also the gay area, or it was developing as the gay area. But also really a beautiful and 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 up-and-coming sort of neighborhood. Yeah. It was also a, a gay cruising area. The park was. The park was. But the circumstances of the shooting don't suggest that. There's a robbery involved. He, I think Joel himself shouts, I'm being robbed, or something like that. You're not going to take my wallet. You're not going to take my wallet, right. And um, given the crowd of people who gather really quickly, it doesn't sound like you know he was out late looking for a hookup in the, in the bushes. It sounds like he was on his way home from somewhere. Yeah, or um, out enjoying the heat wave in yeah. the neighborhood park, and maybe it was cooler there. Who knows? So they a lot of times with places that are not typically given to heat waves, they don't have air conditioning. So he may have just right. gone out to cool off of her bed. Totally. So there, there is a fountain in the park, and the people <clears throat> who are standing near the fountain hear a metallic sound that turns out to be a bullet impact. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Yeah, the fountain thing seemed really unusual to be a metallic sound. Like, the fountain wasn't metallic, so the sound of a bullet impacting stone would be, or cement, would be a metallic sound? I just thought that was an unusual description. I don't know much about guns or bullets or any of it, so that yeah. maybe everybody who knows about that may think I am seem naive, but that seemed like an odd description of a bullet <clears throat> Striking the water and and ultimately the stone or cement of the fountain. My guess would be it struck the stone and bounced off it and into the water because they eventually drain the fountain and find the bullet. And there's right. no mention of it being embedded in anything. So I think it, it skidded or not skidded, but it grazed the stone or whatever the fountain was. Yeah, so maybe that was it. I don't know. I just thought that was an odd description. Anyway, yeah, they the important point of that was that they found – pieces of a bullet in the... Oh, was that it? It was fragments? It, I think so. And okay. they, but they were able to then assess the, both the, um, the caliber of the gun that was used and um, they were able to you know perform a ballistics test and determine they didn't match any guns they had on file or on record, but they would be able to identify a weapon from the striations or whatever they found on the... Right. They the called the, the ATF, bullet. which has a registry of bullets. I was like... How have we gone this far in true crime, Bill, without me knowing that the ATF has a registry of all bullets? I don't I know. I guess it's ones that they've been collected from crime scenes. I can't imagine yeah. it's all bullets. That's a lot of bullets. All like, bullets. Yeah, that's too many. Um, that would be like I have a map of the United States. It's actual size. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the scale is one mile equals one mile. Right. 
Yeah. Is that a joke from someone? Is That's it, Stephen uh, Wright. Oh, okay. The guy who says, I put instant coffee in the microwave oven and I almost went back in time. <laughs> That's a good one. I remember. I that. love Stephen Wright. He's yeah. so funny. Anyway, but it's that sort of sense of that would be too many bullets. This, I think, was just crime scene um, and bullets that, because you can identify the gun based on the, obviously, the ballistics. So Okay, so an eyewitness comes forward. <laughs> okay, <laughs> done talking about that. We, neither one of us knew what we were talking None about. None of us, neither at all. Like, we talk about this sometimes with other people where they they give more of an answer when they don't know the answer, and then the spiritual practice we are trying to engage in, not today, apparently, is to just say, yeah, I don't know. No, today we're in the French fry cult. <laughs> All right. An eyewitness comes forward. Jason Brown. He was in the park the night of the shooting. He says he saw someone. I guess he's, he didn't see them shooting, but he saw them run by suddenly in a suspicious manner. He describes his early 20s, six foot tall and with a thin build. Um, okay, so that's it. That's the first shooting. We're about to move on to the second killing. So 10 days later, a patrol officer named Brian Schaefer, who is interviewed, Receives a call. On Did you mention that they made a composite sketch of the guy from the park? No. So they did. So they, they were able to circulate scene. that. They couldn't necessarily find anybody um, right away. But they, 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 from the description they got from the witness, they, they made a sketch. I think the sketch is I know it's important. important. I just love that you needed to ask about what I said on a show. That, I like couldn't remember if you said ago. it or not. <laughs> You were checking your, you were repairing your glasses. No, I was again. actually looking at the notes because you keep nodding out over there. And I want try, <laughs> I, I trying sound, to say, I usually don't pay much attention to them, but <laughs> but this one, I'm writing this. <laughs> Did you mention that it's a murder? Okay. Ten days later, patrol officer Brian Schaefer, who is now retired, according, they're all retired by the time they interview them. Use it, that's all I put well, in my notes. It was 1991. R-E-T. They're either retired or yeah. 85 years old and still working in the police force. Mm, okay. Oldest living police detective. August 10th, 5.30 a.m., he gets a call that somebody is screaming. A witness directs them to the woods at Riverside Park. This is a different park in Minneapolis. There is a car parked with headlights towards the trail, which drops down fairly steeply. And there they find a male lying on his right side with two bullet wounds in his back. He is 19-year-old Cord Drast. Uh, apparently he says he got separated from his friends. Which is technically true. At 5.30 a.m. in a woodsy park. He survives miraculously and tells police what happened, that he was set up, that a white male about 5'9 with long hair and a baseball cap walked past and then fired at him suddenly. Which, not uh, to be put to find a point on it, is actually matches the composite drawing that they had of the guy from the other part. The, the guy who's six foot tall and with a thin build? That was the thing that stuck out at me. They said... Five nine, and I was like, "How do we get from five nine to six feet tall?" Because people can't gauge how tall people are. That's I, that's my thing too. It's like, how did you know he was one hundred and sixty pounds? I know. I always think like, that's so ridiculous. In the at Seven Eleven, they actually on the door frames they actually have the measurement so that when when you are robbed, when you when the armed robber comes wow. in, you can actually tell how tall they were because of you can see on the door I where they are. No or idea. if they kill the clerk, which is also at Seven Eleven, probably God. a real hazard. The 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 footage from the security cam can identify how tall the the assailant was. Have you never noticed those no. on the door? Look on the door frames the next time you go to Seven Eleven. They actually have 
ruler marks like yeah. on the wall to see how tall. So that's hard to judge. But the baseball cap and the long hair and the thin build is yeah. still the same guy. Okay, so the search, they they do a more extensive search of the park where Cordrast was discovered, shot. And they hear someone crying out for help. And they discover another victim, also a white male. He's lying in a pool of blood and he's been shot twice in the chest. Uh, someone is standing over the second victim covered in blood, but he isn't running and he isn't threatening anybody. So they detain him and he identifies himself as Randy and he says he was in the park. He heard shots and he ran towards the second victim, found him on the ground, tried to provide first aid, which is why he's covered in blood. So they tried to they and bless his heart. Like I have to say, if I was in and this park has no artificial lighting, so None. five thirty in the morning, completely pitch black dark. He hears gunshots and he runs toward them to try and help the victim. That's that's a hero. And wow, if it's not already been clear to you who are listening, this park is a major cruising area for dudes. Which. I'm get, starting to get the, a pattern is starting to emerge. I think parks in Minneapolis, maybe major cruising areas, or at least in 1991, yeah. were major cruising areas for dudes because when you make people's natural behavior illegal, mm -hmm. they have to go out to the park in some place remote to yeah. do it, I guess. Well, you know, everybody says this was before apps on our phones, that this, that became the way to, to meet people. You know, you use these digital right. connections. And that way they could murder you in the privacy of your own home yeah, as exactly. opposed to shooting you in the park, which right. I guess was an improvement. So the second victim's valuables are still present. Um, and he has a Rolex. I, I got a little confused. I was like, he they took the wallet, but he didn't take the Rolex. They, or he didn't have it on him. They didn't even know that he'd taken the wallet, but there was no ID. They couldn't tell who he was because he had no wallet. Uh, but he still had his Rolex on, which they were thinking... You know, if this was a robbery, surely they'd have taken the Rebelex. Although I would say it was also pitch black dark and you knew he had a wallet, but you didn't necessarily know he had a Rolex. So mm -hmm. mm, yeah. it was it was a bit of a toss up. But I, I went with him. It does seem like these are not seeming like um, robberies. No. And so there, there's not uh, they pretty quickly connected to the other shooting, uh, a Joel's murder. And the connection between them is that they both happened in well-known gay hangouts um, I also think the bullet fragments match, but yeah. you wouldn't be able to tell from my notes. But they did. Like, that was how they were quickly able to identify them. Because that, my brilliant note says, bullet fragments from the second victim's body. Right. Period. Which they did, yeah. and they matched the from the the uh, aforementioned, um, uh, <laughs> uh, what did they call it, the registry of all bullets? The, regi the omni-bullet registry. Right, the omni-bullet yeah. registry from the... Um, Tobacco and firearms. ATF. ATF, sorry. You had some of those french fries, too. I think somebody poisoned our french fries, myself. Um, I think we're just having a good time <laughs> at the studio on an of a lovely afternoon. So, our lovely afternoon now results in dental records revealing that the second victim is a former state senator. His name is John Chenoweth. This is described as a bombshell. Because he was kind of a high-profile yes. um, person with a almost controversial political career. Yeah, he was under investigation, basically. He'd been in charge of the Minneapolis Employee Retirement Fund. 
And he was alleged to have the employ me retirement. Employ me. That's not what it was called. Employ me might be a good name for a job recruitment fair. Yes. Uh, He was alleged to have invested in questionable ventures and also to have embezzled funds. They sort of put the embezzled at the end and they put questionable ventures. Like, what did he invest in a wind farm before the technology was there? And he's also a huge mo. Yeah. It was also, yeah. Um, Shortly after an FBI investigation was launched into Chenoweth, and someone broke into his office and stole all of the records of his business dealings. Yeah. I I would like some footage of this break-in. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, mysteriously, all of the records that might have been used to prosecute him were stolen. Yeah. From his office. But only that. Nothing else was stolen from the office. So the controversy around, uh, around Mr. Chenoweth grows. Um, so we've got on July 31st, Larson is shot. That's the first victim. Then 10 days later, these shootings happen in Riverside Park. And apparently that was enough to get this uh, turned into a national news story and for people to start assuming there was a serial killer out there. I hate to sound this jaded, but given the amount of stories like this we've done, that's pretty fast. There can be a lot of murders that happen, particularly of gay men, before it becomes a national news story, especially in 1991. And I have to say, having been a consumer of news stories in 1991, it was a very low-key national news story. I had never heard about these murders ever before. That doesn't mean that in the moment they didn't flicker past on the news, but it wasn't like a a full-court press about it. But it was probably the beginnings of attention being paid and it being a bigger deal. Um, The evidence, uh, the the apparent evidence of the shootings, the choreography of the killing, if, if you will, Suggest this is not a skilled gunman, that it's not a professional hit, because apparently professional hitmen know how to aim for the head. It's harder to hit somebody in the head, but it's more immediately consequential. If well, you once do. you take him down, you just give a tap and yeah, finish at the job. Is that how you do it? Or is that, is that yes. What you learned at hitman school? Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. So mind your P's and Q's and stop with the smart remarks. (laughs) Okay. All right. Um, The bullets match, and they were fired from the same gun. Um, August 19th, hundreds of LGBT people gathered to demand action, and there is footage, and they did. They gathered in City Hall, and they were... They were mad as hell. Yeah, It was was an act-up kind of time, and there was act-up people fussing. They were mad, and they wanted it fixed. So it sounds like the police spring into action pretty quickly, but the only people interviewed in this special are police. I don't think they interview any gay activists from the community. No, they're not. Ta- they're apparently not talking about this because yeah. they don't remember either. <laughs> they don't remember. Okay. So the police put some detectives undercover, and it just so happens Stephen Berg, who was interviewed earlier, was a gay, as old people like to say. Um, so he, <laughs> he becomes... The resource that they use because people in the community are willing to talk to him. Um, then the head, police headquarters gets a new lead. A deputy who works at the jail says somebody resembling the composite sketch has been booked into jail for a robbery at one of the gay bars in downtown Minneapolis. So it fits both gay men plus robbery, which is two. There are two theories so far. Yeah, and Minneapolis, uh, <laughs> which is apparently a small town, big city. The right. suspect's name is Dirk Jordan. He denies involvement. He says he's never been to Loring Park. But I'm sure he's delighted to have his name on this special all these years later. I think it sounds like his porn name, but okay. 
Uh, his alibi is flimsy. I think that's just the hazard of being named Dirk. I don't think you can be <laughs> named Dirk without, without the Dirk Diggler reference coming up and everybody thinking it's a poor name. But I have to tell you, uh-huh. um, other than the Playgirl guy who went on to be famous for being also gay, because all of the other Playgirl guys were so straight, um, <laughs> and because so many women bought Playgirl. And, Dirk Schaefer. Yeah, you Dirk mean, Schaefer. Yeah. I don't know of any porn stars who were named Dirk. And you have seen the registry of all porn stars over I, at the ATF office. I kind of have. Yeah, I know. I have, too. <laughs> I don't remember any either. I don't either. And I, I think either. if we don't remember, if between the two of us, we don't remember any porn stars <laughs> named Dirk other than Dirk Schaefer, who wasn't really a porn star, he just was in no. Playgirl magazine, um, I think there aren't any. <laughs> Christopher and I, and all of us at TDPS, are still grieving the loss of my dear friend and our beloved premier party person, Anne Rice. But my mother's literary legacy gave birth to a diverse and wonderful community of readers and fans who continue to celebrate her work online. We invite you to join them on the Facebook page dedicated to Anne's legacy. That's where you'll receive the latest updates on new editions of her work and all the exciting changes coming to the AnneRice.com website. Also on the Anne Rice Facebook page, you can join the mailing list to receive all the latest news and information about her forthcoming celebration of life in New Orleans. That's at facebook.com slash Anne Rice fan page, no spaces. If you believe, as we do, that Anne's work is as immortal as her characters, then join us at Anne Rice fan page on facebook.com. See you there. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? So, they're investigating Dirk Jordan, not a porn star, as we've established, okay? He's been booked into jail for a robbery of a gay bar. Says he's never been to Loring Park, so they do a police lineup with his photo, and they show it to the eyewitness from Loring Park, who was responsible for the composite sketch that you made sure we included in our show, because it's so important. Because it ultimately is the only real clue that they have, and it is really essential in this particular arrest, and... I missed the part where we established that he was not a porn star. Like, we just said that we didn't know any porn stars named Dirk Dirk. Jordan, but he could have been a porn star. The composite sketch suggests that it would not have been a very profitable porn movie. You know, 
You've seen some unprofitable porn movies. I've seen a lot of unprofitable porn movies. Bat Dude and Throbbing. Point one, yes. Bat Dude and Throbbing definitely being one of the most, although on camp value, that may have sold more than any porn movie ever made. And then second, I think that the composite sketch was not of the part of the man that makes for (laughs) successful porn movies. Just those are my two points on the porn star thing. But yes, meanwhile, they've brought in Jordan for question and done a photo array using the um But here's my thing. Jason Brown is gonna come up a lot because he was the he was an eyewitness, but it's they don't make it clear what he was an eyewitness to. So he saw this guy Running through the park, did he see him shooting Loring, uh, the, doing the Loring Park shooting? He only saw him in Loring Park okay. leaving at the time of of, of uh, Larson's killing. Joel? Okay. Joel? Joel Larson, yeah. I think, yeah. So there you go, because he's lied to the police. He says, I've never been to Loring Park, but Jason Brown says, I saw this guy in Loring Park. So even if he's he didn't, he didn't see him with the gun in his hand, he's lied about his whereabouts. Um, they interviewed Dirk Jordan's family in Iowa, and it turns out his sister killed herself, and the weapon used was a 38 caliber handgun that disappeared. And it turns out, or maybe I was wrong about that. I wrote that it turns out it's the murder weapon, but the gun itself can't be located. It just matches the bullets from both murders, I think is what happens. They're both 38s. Yeah, and that's what I, I think what you meant by it's the murder weapon. Murder yeah. weapons, the murder weapon was also a 38. Okay. Um, they're not in a huge rush about any of this because they really think Dirk is the guy and he's not leaving jail for the other robbery. Because he's already soon. been arrested, so they don't have to put together a case to keep him in custody. So then in February 1992, there is a shocking twist. The assistant news director at KTSP, which is a local television station, gets a letter. The author identifies themselves as being the AIDS commission and they claim responsibility for the park shootings. They also claim that Dirk Jordan is innocent, and they assert that the killer slowed down the spread of AIDS, but the letter includes details of the crimes that only the killer would know. Like the letter writer knows that Cord Drast, for instance, the first victim who was discovered in Riverside Park with the second set of shootings. This is the newsflash. Didn't tell the truth about his own shooting. Which the police don't know yet. Cord was, in fact, he didn't get separated from his friends at 5.30 a.m. in the park. He was having sex with Chenoweth, the victim who died at the time, and they were both shot simultaneously. Uh, Cord... Uh, confesses this is true to the police and that he misled them the first time. And so they realize the letter writer is, in fact, the killer. So the cops put out a warning to the community that all young gay men are potential targets. Um, This was a man. This was just made me sick. Joel Larson's father, that's the first victim, Joel Larson, in Loring Park. And doesn't even live in Minneapolis, lives in Iowa. Receives a jar of dirt from someone claiming that they're the AIDS commission and the dirt is from Joel's grave. Charming. Had to find the man's address and mail it to him in Iowa to disgrace the grave of the dead man. Just disgusting. February 18th, 1992, the Gay Lesbian Action Council, which is a local activist group, receives a phone call from someone claiming to be involved in the murders. The caller also warns there will be more killings. So the investigators set up tracing devices on the council's phones, and a day later, on February 20th, uh, 2,992, sorry, this is a Netflix show suddenly. So 1,500 days, (laughs) years later. 
Excuse me. Um, it was two days later, it's not 1,500 years later. He calls again. They get a successful trace to a house that belongs to a little old lady in Roseville, which is a suburb of Minneapolis. There's a car in the driveway when they get there. So they call their gay detective, and he recognizes the plate number on the car as having been in Loring Park hundreds of times. Because he's also a savant as well as being a gay person? Or was he in charge of keeping track of license plates of cars parked at Loring Park? I was like, this is an interesting fact, but how was it obtained? How did he necessarily know that? I was really, yeah. I thought that was an interesting and unexplained connection. I believe them, but... But it was it was an odd insertion. I thought it was, too. It was sometimes when they need to condense for time, the condensation will take a really weird form phrase-wise. It's like, you know. They do that on Murder, She yeah. Wrote a lot, too, where it's like, how would she know that already? Did she talk to somebody about that? Is this an edited version? Am I not seeing the full version? Is these? I want the director's cut of every Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> That's All I, 630. I do. <laughs> We're old. All right. Um, the car belongs to a guy named Jay Johnson. It got a parking citation once right by where the second victims were shot. On July 26th... Isn't that the star of the crying game? Mm, that was like Jay... Jay, Jay it's not the same person, Of obviously. course not. <laughs> just like, of course not. Who later went on to star in the crying <laughs> game. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> Uh, why don't you look that up? I'm looking that up. Okay, I, I will tell our lovely party people that you I'll actually do the show that we're supposed to. Be on doing. July 26, he applied to purchase a firearm through the city Jay of Roseville. Jay Davidson. Jay Davidson. Thank you. Uh, Larson was murdered the evening that Jay Johnson purchased his firearm in Roseville, and this is enough for them to draft a search warrant. So the search warrant coincides with the arrest of 26-year-old Jay Johnson, who does not resist arrest. Um, Jason Brown, the eyewitness who was responsible for the composite sketch, picks out Jay Johnson from a lineup, which then exonerates Dirk Jordan. And it turns out Johnson was renting the basement apartment from the home's owner, the little old lady. They literally describe her as a little old lady. And she didn't seem like a little old lady to me when we I saw her. Right. I was like, okay, I guess she's maybe my age, but maybe that was her she daughter. didn't seem that little. Or maybe so. I don't know. And the reason they're like, well, we knew he was gay because we saw he had this video and did she hold it up? It's yeah. Like a porn film called The Rights of Summer or something. Which I've totally seen. It's vivid. <laughs> was I think, Dirk yeah. Jordan in it? I don't think so. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe you should watch it before we record our next episode. Um but they also find he's got a lot of books about serial killers, and he's collecting articles about the shootings. They find a brown briefcase containing a bald cap, a wig, and a thirty-eight caliber Ruger. Yeah, it's really like um, yeah. if they needed more proof than that, it's like it's actually the thing that he – it's the, what the, all the witnesses describe the murderer is looking like. And he was planning to kill again, obviously. Clearly. So they've always assumed that it was a straight person trying to attack the gay community, but it turns out Jay Johnson was known to be gay. His journal reveals that he wanted to enter the ranks of the most notorious serial killers and that he was HIV positive. He's charged with two counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder. He takes a plea deal to avoid trial, which gives him two life sentences plus 15 years. The backstory here is as horrible as the rest of it. He was a biracial man adopted into a very religious white family, and his adoptive father beat his homophobia into him, as somebody who was interviewed says. 
Then he contracted HIV, and his interpretation of that was that he was being punished that by his God. his father was right, that it was actually a punishment. And I got to say, they interviewed Joel's sister and friend from the beginning of the episode, the first victim, sister and friend, and they are way more compassionate about this guy. Now, they've had, what, 30 years to sort of work through their feelings about it, but I got the impression that Joel's sister was also a member of the community, if you will, because she refers to we and us when talking about the LGBT community. No idea, and but she maybe seemed so. To, yeah. Um, and so eventually a friend of Joel's named Jennifer was inspired to create a dedication bench to him in Loring Park, and people flew in from everywhere to honor him. And the quote on the bench is, let us turn our backs on hatred, teach love. So... Yeah, I can't believe I had never heard of this story. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, this is really this is I thought a pretty big story, and I really had no previous knowledge of it. And it, I guess, it ha, it got resolved pretty quickly, and mm-hmm. there was no trial. There was no trial. I right. think oftentimes things are quieted down by that because that's where the coverage typically happens. Absolutely, you get yeah. exposed to the murder over and over again, unless it has been a long protracted, you know, something. John Wayne Gacy or something yeah. really the Golden State Killer gigantic yeah. that right. that lasts for a long time and involves a lot of victims. I, I think sometimes when things are resolved as quickly as this was, that can help obscure them. I guess over time because well, we just I, didn't get reminded as many. Times. I think that's absolutely right. I think the one thing about this case that I would have thought would have mitigated that and maybe rocketed it more into the spotlight is the letters to the press. That's really, I mean, the press is all over that kind of shit. Think of the, that, the fire on the Zodiac case was and really those naming letters. naming himself the AIDS Commission yeah. and sending bottles of dirt to the victim's yeah. family, which is just whatever. And, you know, yeah, absolutely. There is, like, homophobia is not limited to straight no. people. Homophobia mm. can very much be, when you teach people to hate them, hate other people and they happen to be you know, the same as the people they're taught to hate, then they can ultimately become as homophobic as anybody. Yeah. Even if they are gay, if you hate gay people and you're a gay person, you're still going to be homophobic. I, yeah. Some of the most homophobic behavior I have ever experienced has been at the hands of other gay people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, do you want to talk about it? No. Okay. <laughs> I don't yeah. I don't think I necessarily need to I don't know that is there a particular story you had in mind of Well, me? I I think that it it all comes down to yeah, how we express ourselves. That certain members of the community get all over, you know, like having a gay voice or being queenie. They they attack us. Yeah. We attack each other over that kind of shit. Yeah. I mean, you know? I the, the notion the one that I've always thought was the craziest was the notion of straight acting as yeah. though seeming to be gay was somehow Mm-hmm. you know, antithetical to being attractive to other gay people. Like, I'm sorry, so you want to date a man who doesn't want to have gay sex with you? Because right. have, wanting to have gay sex with you is actually the thing that makes them gay, not yeah. not whether or not they're an interior decorator or have a queenie lisp. Yeah. You know, it's actually the cocksucking. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. That, that's actually the gay, the real. That's what separates the gays yeah, from right. the not so gay. Right. Um, even if they are, you know, very supportive uh, right. allies of the community. <laughs> Do you want to tell that story? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah it's it, it, it it's an absurd notion, but it is born of that sort of internalized homophobia. We are taught to hate ourselves from a very young age, and I think a lot of really vitriolic, like Roy Cohn, mm-hmm. you know, was a 
a, a gay man. I honestly think our new um, speaker hateful house. speaker of the house yeah. is a closet case. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I'm a gay man, and I don't think about gay sex as much as the new speaker of the house does. So right. Seems like a closet case to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, otherwise, why are you spending so much time thinking about gay sex? Yeah, I mean, if he's if he's writing legal opinions that say sex between two men is physically dangerous, he's done a lot of research. Apparently, he must really be aware that. of what that is and why it would be dangerous and whatever. I just but not enough preparation if he thinks it's dangerous. I think yeah, yeah. he just he needs a better lube. Right, exactly. <laughs> or to learn what to do with his teeth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I hate him. Uh, anyway, let's not get. Well, but, he hates us too, yeah. apparently, but that doesn't mean he's not gay. Yeah, as we've just proved in tonight's episode. <laughs> <laughs> like the the more you know tone you right, gave to da, that. Da, da, da. <laughs> um, you know, I uh, I felt like I said, you know, we only really interviewed the police, but I felt it looked like this was one of those cases where they were on it. I mean, they had a gay cop in the department. They knew who he was enough to go to him right away and right, say, "We need say to we do need you to as to, a resource. reach out to the community because they're not talking to us because yeah. they don't trust us." And we had. We still have plenty of reason, but we certainly had a lot more in 1991. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this was one of those stories where the the obviously the origin story of the monster here was really distressing, but the rest of it was like you saw some good sides of the investigators. You know, yeah. just a work ethic around the case. There was no, and there was not even even in the reporting of um, Rep, uh, Senator, I guess he was mm-hmm. um, Chenoweth. The controversy wasn't because he was a gay senator. It was because he was had done some things that were ethically questionable, and that was his more controversial nature. It wasn't necessarily because he was because he was gay that that you know that he was such a standout in the community. Yeah. I thought all of those things spoke really well. I read a while ago. It's been a while ago, but I read somebody had Out Magazine or somebody like that advocate had done a report on what the most gay-friendly cities were to live, and the number one choice was Minneapolis. Get the fuck out of here. I was really like, oh, isn't that interesting? Because you think of, you know, as you head more into the, you know, the middle of the country, into the more, into the small communities. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I have to say I'm with you. I, I, I It's a lot smaller than Los Angeles compared yeah, to Yeah, sure, but everything probably, is. But it's probably as big as San Francisco. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty good-sized city. Um but yeah, they said it was a particularly, and it was surprising to me. But, but it it really sort of made sense. Like one of the earliest wasn't Indiana or Iowa or one of those one of the earliest states to legalize gay marriage. It was there was yeah. there, it's sometimes those kinds of places. There is a more sort of egalitarian spirit mm-hmm. guiding. Um, uh, places like that that then I think we give them credit for. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, I don't want to know. Like, I don't necessarily yeah. want to be gay, and I may not be the, the most liberal person in the world, but, like, whatever you're doing at home, I don't want to know about it, and I don't need you to know what I'm doing at home either. So, you know, via Candias and Before the Trump era, I heard a poll about Wyoming that I thought was fascinating, which is the vast majority, the majority of its residents didn't approve of gay marriage, but wouldn't agree to ban it. Yeah. For the, the That was the mountain states. We were always told the mountain states were like that, too. They were libertarian. They were do your own thing. You know, all that sort of stuff. Similar to the Midwest. Yeah. And I think it's the, it's dawned on them that it's like that old Paula Poundstone joke of like, they, they just want to legalize gay marriage. They don't want to make it mandatory. Right. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's really like it, 
I think there's a realization among most people of like, well, I don't see what this has to do with me. So yeah, do whatever yeah. you want to. I, I think that there is a more live and let live spirit in this country than we ever really get credit for because we spend so much of our time focused on the loud mouths mm-hmm. at the fringes rather yeah. than um, the bulk of the people who are not all that concerned about what other people are doing with their bodies or in their love no. life or with their own personal choices. I just, I think that is more true of us than we give ourselves credit for. Absolutely. Uh, so we are, with the next episode coming up, we are wrapping up the Heartland Horrors. Murder in the Heartland. Heartland Heart. We still haven't decided. Heartland Horrors? I like Heartland Horrors. Okay. Because yeah. Murder in the Heartland sounds too much like the shows we're actually doing. It just worries me that people are going to think we're doing another film festival. Oh, God. <laughs> Never again. If you, if you, did if we you, do Heartland Horrors the last time? No, I, I don't think. I think it was Murder in the Midwest. No, Murder whatever. Midwest Mayhem. I think mm. is what it was. No that Heartland Horrors. This is not that. There are no movies involved. We're not no. doing movie festivals for a while. No, burned our fingers pretty badly. We'll get back to you. It's not gone, <clears> but it'll be a while before we do another pair. But this is gonna. We're going to the South in the next episode. We're going to your home state of South Carolina with an episode of Murder Comes to Town entitled No Witnesses. That's season five, episode two, our standard disclaimer, which Eric gave for me at the beginning of the podcast this evening, is uh, you do not have to watch the episode. We are going to serve it up for you in such steaming French-fried detail that you will feel like you've watched it. Well, Christopher's the, speaking of French fries, apparently Christopher's have worn off now. He's seems to be coming back on you. Get, kept, you got you slapped me back I onto my woke toes. Woke him back up. I scared him. It was that look. It was the the eye contact. Eric's eye contact. Mongoose and 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 cobra eye contact that he got earlier. Bl- uh, Blumhouse presents Eric's eye contact. <laughs> so anyway, that's coming up on the next episode. Any final thoughts, Eric Shaw Quinn? Um. You know, I guess I'm not really from South Carolina. My parents live there now. I was like, I couldn't believe I made it this long without you clapping back. Well, you kept talking, and you (laughs) were saying stuff that people needed to hear, so I thought I'd give you a minute. But, yeah, although, to be honest with you, my parents and my brother and my sister live there, so I was thinking about it. I I guess it's pretty fair. I mean, I'm from California is Mm -hmm. my home state, so— you know, we always count Natchitoches, Louisiana as being home, but I think it's just because we moved there twice. Yeah. The only place that I've lived for any length of time other than California is South Carolina. So yeah. fair's fair, you know, like. I've now lived in Los Angeles longer than I have lived anywhere else. Anywhere else. Even yeah. nothing is even comes close. So I really do consider this home and. And the rest of the the other places that we lived so many places, it's hard to really nail one down. You guys were like a traveling circus. We really were, yeah. except you know, without the rings or the entertainment value. <laughs> or the profits. Yeah, or <laughs> certainly the profits. Although most circuses are bankrupt most of the time, so absolutely. I don't know that that's necessarily the hallmark, but certainly we had the the our share of elephants. Absolutely. <laughs> our share of elephants. A memoir by Eric Shaw Quinn. <laughs> All right, on that final thought. Always an elephant in the room at our house. Correcting the record with Eric and Christopher. Until next time and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.